Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is currently an artist at Pixar who has worked on over 18 plus films. But before that, he worked in the video game industry on games such as Grim Fandango, the Star Wars Rogue Squadron games, Episode 1 Racer, just to name a few. I'd like to welcome Paul Topolos. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks, thanks for me. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for taking time out of your day. I appreciate it. My, my <laughs> pleasure. My yeah. pleasure. One of the things I want to know is because you worked for both Lucasfilm and LucasArts, how different were those two, I guess, subsidiaries, I guess you could say? Yeah. Or was there a lot of I mean, overlap it, and similarities? Well, um, I think part of it is... I mean, games, you're, you're building kind of a world, um, a place that you can explore and go around. Uh, whereas film, it was, it was shot based. So uh, a shot is a length of film unbroken by a cut. And so you would be breaking down a movie in terms of uh, all the different locations, how much coverage. Um, whereas a, a game, you'd be thinking, I mean, it was a, a little bit more about world building and um it was you know especially in some of the flight games the player could kind of fly just about everywhere that they wanted to go um and i think maybe the other difference would be just in terms of an, an emotional thing that a, a film is 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 all about emotion conflict i mean i guess there's conflict in video games but it's it's a little bit different. I, I think games tend to be a little bit more about mood and action and uh, film is definitely a lot more of a, of a visual representation of a narrative of storytelling. Um, so, and, and I think too, when I was working at Lucasfilm, it was, it was, it was only about the visuals and we didn't have, you didn't have the limitations of, of what a game engine could handle. So you, you didn't really have to worry about frame rate. You didn't, I could paint paintings that would be pretty huge. Um, whereas in games, depending on the game, there was, there was a lot more, a lot more about limitations. Mm. Did you have to transfer between both? So you'd have a frame of mind where you'd be developing games and then you'd do stuff for Lucas uh, Lucasfilm, well, and then you'd have to change your mentality somewhat. I mean, I mean, I mean although, um, so I, I just worked briefly on episode one as a storyboard artist, and so that that you weren't credited. Drawn. Should have been. Credited. I was uncredited. <laughs> yes, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have enough clout to, uh, uh, and, and I didn't work, definitely did not work long enough on it. They they had a big story push, and so. Um, one of the guys that I had apprenticed under, Ian McCaig, uh, who um, there was a big story crunch. And so uh, I got I got brought up with uh, another artist, an amazing artist, Peter Chan, who was who was um, did a lot of work for LucasArts. So both he and I went up for this crazy storyboarding crunch. And then a few years later, I was doing more uh, matte painting, but also model painting. Uh, for the animatics crew on on episode two, and and so that was in some ways a little bit similar to the work that I was doing on Rogue Leader because it was um, it was model painting and also uh, matte painting, which is kind of like making a, a background. Uh, uh, so in in some ways there there's there are similarities because you're you're dealing with Star Wars, you're dealing with that kind of Star Wars aesthetic um so it wasn't it, it, you know it it wasn't that much of a of a of a switch and both were just very high pressure um long hours so there was a lot in common as far as like just the workflow yeah but i i do wonder though is there a bit of a checklist for you like in terms of what you can and can't do like how far can you push it before it's deemed not Star Wars enough? 
in terms well, of in terms yeah, of um, was, artistry. Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely, I mean, I think that's what was kind of fun, like on Rogue Leader, was that Rogue Leader kind of it art directed itself. You know, it's, it's like in that if if there were things that sort of strayed away from Star Wars. It, you could tell everybody could tell i mean it yeah. wasn't it wasn't me coming coming down talking to somebody as if you know i had my own sense of it it was like hey does this look like this or does this feel like it could belong in the same world and um but i i mean that being said it was um i remember i think it was on racer that it was the first time that they brought us up to Skywalker Ranch um to the secret third floor and that was the first time that I saw the the all the concept art and um it was I almost teared up it was just so amazing just all the the work of uh of Doug Chang Ian McKaig Jay Schuster uh Tara Whitlatch the model makers just looking at all this artwork that was because I hadn't seen anything from the prequels. I mean, I knew Doug's style, but it was, I thought that's what kind of was refreshing was that it was so different. And yet it, it kind of felt like star Wars, you know, it wasn't, mm. you know, it, it was definitely a lot more um, sort of aerodynamic and, and lots more sort of curvy shapes. It wasn't as sort of blocky um, as, as some of the star Wars stuff tends to be but but it and some of the, the episode one stuff was definitely a lot more ornate you know they were looking at for Theed a lot of sort of Turkish architecture and um uh, Moorish architecture so it was it that I think that was what was kind of refreshing was just to see the stuff that was part of the prequels it was stuff that George was approving but it it had a very different look than my generations of my generation of Star Wars. So I don't know if that long answer. <laughs> no, it kind of makes sense, but I'm trying question. to remember because when did Episode One Racer get greenlit? I'm trying well, to because it was it was it, it during the production of Episode One? I'm trying to recall. So it, it it came it came out with Episode One. So that right. was that was. Our, our big hard deadline and I so remember... you were being exposed to the film or you got to see part of the film or concept art maybe shots of the film prior to the release of episode one so you're working oh in oh, conjunction yeah. no, with you, it you kind of you kind of had to um yeah and then when i was storyboarding you know i was seeing a lot more of the film um obviously <laughs> because i'm doing the, the boards um but it it was it was fascinating because even uh, Ben Burt, the amazing amazing sound designer, um, they were finishing Racer. They'd finished it. It was in the can, and then at the very last moment before episode one released, they changed the um, the sound effect for Sebulba's pod. So if you uh -huh. if you play the game Racer, that you, you'll you'll notice it's a different it's a different sound effect. That little trivia for the nerds uh, me being one of them um, but uh but yeah it, and it was fascinating because you're i remember when they were working on racer they couldn't really have the pods for the longest time because all this stuff was very top secret so they would have two tie fighters being um as the engine so that was when they were working on the programming that that's that was what they sort of substituted so that nobody would see the actual, what the actual racers were for a little while. And then, so it was a very, you know, the concept art, all that was very, very sort of secret for a long time uh, during the process. So what was it like for you then when you first watched The Phantom Menace? Considering that you would have seen the podcast, uh, podcast, pod racer, in its full glory and then obviously you did some work on it as well so was it surreal um yeah i mean it, it i think as an adult 
my experience was a little bit different than I just I remember sometimes like working at the ranch and something would blow you away like I'd be I'd be working at the ranch and somebody needed just as reference that like the Jawa gun from the first from New Hope there's Mm -hmm. the Jawa gun right there on the table and that would just blow me away or Sir Alec Guinness's robes Obi-Wan robes would be up there and you know I, I would think about how I would be as a little kid <laughs> I would just be like and you can see my hand I'd just be like oh, I'm, I'm taking that I'm I'm gonna <laughs> but as an adult you know your, your taste kind of change and so I for me the thing that was blowing me away was the artistry and the the craftsmanship and um you know, and I do think, I mean, the pod racing sequences was great and the the animatics crew did a, an amazing job uh, for George and, and George was really into racing. And um, so it was, it was really neat to see that it was, um, it was a little weird because you, you, I would be seeing bits and pieces of stuff. I'd be seeing concept art. I'd be seeing just these beautiful things and you weren't quite sure how they were all going to fit once you saw the movie we were we'd seen a few rough cuts of the film and so it was both amazing to see it all together it was you know you also kind of saw how the sausage was made <laughs> and you're seeing all these things dilutes the experience somewhat if yeah, you know and how and the you sausage have a hypercritical made. view of stuff and i remember I remember early on, my buddy Ian, uh, this was when I started boarding on it, he kind of told me what the story was. And, and so I, I almost like have that vision of episode one in my head of, of Ian McKaig telling me the story on the veranda of Skywalker Ranch. And, you know, so when he's telling me like, oh, oh, Anakin was a slave. Like what, there, there's slavery on Tatooine? that's amazing. That's why Darth Vader's all messed up. And, and so you, you kind of have, you, you know, I, I guess it's like people that read a book and then you see them, you see a movie and it might not be exactly what you thought it would be or, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, and I think to, um, to say that I was a fan of the original trilogy, I, I think more the psychological term is fanatic. I mean, I was like that movie, <laughs> changed my life and it made me interested in you know a, a lover of film a lover of, of you know classical music of of the works of kurosawa and and you know all the john ford movies and all that so it it, it was i i guess what i'm trying to say is that i was kind of coming at it from from much different age and point of view and I think maybe if I was taking LSD when I saw episode one maybe it would bring me back to being a 10 year old again but it was yeah yeah well I suppose it's different for people that actually worked on it right because you know everything behind the scenes you know all the hard work as opposed to someone that's seeing a film or even playing a video game with no idea what went on behind the scenes sometimes ignorance is bliss i guess yeah yeah and i think god i was just listening to an interview with george where um there's a there's a wonderful interview if anybody uh, wants to watch of, of christopher nolan interviewing uh george yeah i've seen it uh, for the yeah for the i think it's director's guild of but <laughs> you kind of get this sense of oh, sorry I lost my life of um, that George didn't even know how good it was or that he, he just saw all these faults with it. And even though, I mean, for, for me, the special effects as a little kid just were amazing. Um, and it, it made me think, cause I think last time we talked, I was telling you about um, one night, and I can't remember if this was during the deleted scenes of episode two that I was working on, or if this was just on episode two, you know, I'm working at Skywalker Ranch and one night they say, Hey, if you want to watch 2001 with one of the original 
um, one of the original people from ILM, from Star Wars, when it was down in Los Angeles, he'll introduce 2001 for us. And we can watch it in George's private screening room, which, you know, sure, I'm going to watch that. And what he was saying about 2001 was that was their benchmark. And they wanted to make something as jaw-dropping as 2001, but fun. And that's, and when you see Star Wars, that, I mean, it, Star Wars was so much fun. It was, you know, part Western, part Buck Rogers, part Wizard of Oz, you know, with these groundbreaking special effects that nobody had ever seen like that in such an enjoyable way. I mean, 2001 is just so breathtakingly beautiful, but it's, it's not really a, a, a kid's film. No. Um, and, I, and I've completely forgotten what your question was. That's all right. That's all right. I've even, I've even forgotten my own question because <laughs> I was so entrenched in what you were saying. It's real fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about Rogue Leader because I feel that's one of the best looking games on the GameCube. Oh. Well, well, thank even you. even I mean, now, like, it's still, I think if you just up-rest it, it would still look amazing. Right? Uh, well, that, it's, well, it's funny. I, I, I got a, what was it? I got a quote. Um, it's from Orson Welles. And it says, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. A friend of mine used that at work recently. And I thought that was a good um, quote. That was a good quote because the whole, when I first started working on Racer, um, it was all about limitations. It was, you know, it was like that bit in Apollo 13 where they say, you have to make this fit with this only using this. And I think, I think somewhere else they were talking about that the lunar module only had, they only had enough electricity to play with that would be like a coffee maker. Like, and, and I think the analogy that I gave you was working on a Nintendo 64 game was like riding on a moped that had, it was almost out of gas with a flat tire and you've got <laughs> blinders on. Yeah, and, and you've got severe diarrhea. I mean, it's like <laughs> everything. I I mean, I couldn't believe it because you're 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 dealing with a postage stamp texture. Yeah, and you might for, and that would be sixty four pixels by sixty four, and it wasn't even that. It was sixty three pixels by sixty three pixels, and you had to copy a row, put it over on the other side. These would be for tileable textures. And then you had to reduce it down to 16 colors using a program called the Babelizer. And, and then, so each level, you would have maybe 29, maybe 32 textures for the background. And just like that quote about limitations, that was kind of freeing for me because there were, there've been open-ended games that I worked on that were just kind of you just couldn't get your head around but this one it's like you you get the 29 textures you you find photographic reference you iterate you try maybe 50 different things until you find the best one and it's like you and and you work off that and so in my head it's like okay 29 29 textures i, I can do that 29 okay 28 now i i just got this perfect one all right 27 then so it that's kind of this mentality that I had. These textures were precious, and that you, you were trying to get every use every part of the buffalo to get a level that looked good. And on Rogue Leader, all of a sudden the moped's gone. Here are keys for a sports car. Here's here's a Ferrari. You 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 don't you don't have to worry about that you're dealing with this. And so I think a lot of us at Factor 5 had been <laughs> been so burned and had so many frustrations on Rogue Squadron that we still had this idea of limitations that was good on Rogue Leader. 
And it's like a programmer would tell us how many polygons, what was our limit? And it was so much more than we had on, on Rogue Squadron. But we try to be we try to be frugal. Um, and so my thing was that, okay, I've got this huge, you know, when Julian, uh, the head of Factor 5, was, was pitching this to me, it was like, you can do 1024 by 1024. And most TVs were, what was it, like 480, I think. Yeah. Um, so I had this huge palette to work with. And um, I could have any color that I wanted. And for me, um, I wanted I wanted this game. Now that I had the biggest palette, I wanted it to be ILM quality paintings on the models. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to blow people away. I wanted it to be the highest quality that you could do. And I was gonna use every freaking pixel of that 1024. And I think before that, just because of frame rate and stuff, people were having to, to paint very small. Um, even like an amazing game like Dark Forces and, and Jedi Knight, um, Chris Hawkabout was still painting these. And there was, for how beautiful they looked, there was also kind of like a stylization to them. And this, I kind of wanted to go the opposite extreme, that now we had now that we could do special effects quality paintings on the model, I was going to do that. And so I was telling you that, you know, I had, I mean, all of us that worked on the game were huge Star Wars fans. And, and I think we wanted, we just wanted to do it right. We wanted to do it right for, for our memories, for, for me to kind of like thank, you know, not, not George necessarily, but thank the movie, thank all the artists that worked on it and you know all this inspiring artwork because as as i'm doing all the paintings for the models i'm looking at the original models and i'm using you know bits and pieces of those and i'm painting on top i'm trying to get these things to look as authentic as i could and and just my respect for the model makers and the craftsmen and the designers that was what was kind of I guess my North star. And that was the thing that kind of got me really motivated was just seeing all this beautiful work that was such an important part of my childhood. And I think even as a little kid, um, I was kind of disappointed with like, um, what was it some of the Kenner toys and stuff that would come out. I remember when the action figures, I was like 10 years old when Star Wars came out. I was like, oh my God, there's action figures. And they come out and they're really kind of crappy. And this is not on model. Ten year old is is judging corporate toys as not being very good, and and so it would kind of annoy me when I would see Star Wars things that didn't live up to you know the the quality of um, of the movies. And I think that one of the things that I tried to push when I was at games was that the visual side is very important. Everything that you see on the screen is geometry and digital paint. And, and that even though it's a game and that it has to be fun, everything that you see is, is created. And there's a responsibility to make, especially when you're working on a movie title, there's a responsibility to make that stuff look as good as it can and my argument to upper management was it's actually beneficial to to the bottom line the more you can make a game look better the more that you can make it look closer to the movie the more people that are going to buy it the more people like me that's not a gamer um but if i saw something that was amazing looking that would intrigue me and i think that was what was like when uh, Chris Cly, who's an amazing level designer, he and I worked really hard on on the Space World demo and worked hard on on getting Rogue Leader with a whole team. Um, he and I just were like, we're gonna we're gonna try and blow these people away uh, as far as you know the visuals um, because the programming guys in the GameCube itself were just 
so massively strong. It was, it was just so important to us just to try and make this groundbreaking game, groundbreaking visuals, because Star Wars was groundbreaking. So it mm. was like we had a high, high bar to, to follow. Um, but you did it uh, right out the gate because it was a launch title for the GameCube, right? Yeah. So you well, delivered one of the best looking games on the GameCube right out the gate. Like usually with hardware, it takes developers a while to work out everything before. And then usually by the end of the generation, people tap into the hardware more. But <laughs> you guys just right out the gate, you delivered one of the best looking games i think that's oh, still amazing to no, this day thanks. well yeah i mean it was a total team team effort and i think the thing i was telling you before was that um for how great lucas arts was sometimes they were a little bit short-staffed programming wise and i think the the good thing about factor five was that it was it was programmer heavy and it was mm. a very small um art department and i think um, for, me, for me, Rogue Squadron, I, don't know, I, I think the word dumpster fire kind of maybe overused, but it, it was a hard game. It, Rogue Squadron was very difficult to get through. And pretty much right after Rogue Squadron, we did Rogue Leader and we had learned the hard way <laughs> so much from, from Rogue Squadron. And so we didn't, want to get burned again so it was like we were able to hit hit the hit the ground rolling no what well, i'm trying hit to hit the ground hit running the right there you go. hit the ground running yeah you don't want to be rolling you, you don't no, want you wouldn't want to be rolling no um but it was it was again this idea of limitations of like we knew okay we can use so much, we have so many more polygons, we've got so much more space for textures, but you know, you got to keep the frame rate. And we knew off the bat that we had to limit ourselves. Like, even though it looks great, it is a limited, there's a limited number of textures, a limited number of polygons, but we tried to squeeze everything that we could out of that. So I think, you know, it, I think on the good side, it was just, it was the right conglomeration of the right people at the right time. Um, and I guess none of us had social lives back then. I mean, it was, <laughs> we were, I think I told you, it was like the opposite of, of Das Boat, where at, at the end of nine months, we were all pale, but pudgy from all the, the rich, um, bad food that we would well, not bad food but we would be eating comfort food just about every night in the office and so you were crunching a lot i take it we were crunching for nine months i mean for the whole really for the so whole time how many it hours was, how many hours are we talking a week well so i was telling you that <laughs> the weird thing was that i agreed to do rogue leader and so the only two lucas arts people that were brought over were, were uh, Chris Klein, um, and, and myself and, and I agreed to join. And then all of a sudden I get a call from Lucasfilm saying that they want me back for episode two, which was just such an honor. And it was also like the parent company is asking for this. Mm. So, you know, I, I think I told you that it was like asking my mom and dad for permission to do something. It was like, I had to ask Factor 5, I had to ask LucasArts, but both of them knew that the parent company was asking for this. And so their thing was, well, you know, we'll give you permission to work yourself to death, but if you can't, if you can't fulfill your obligations to Rogue Leader, then we'll, we'll have to, you know, tell the parent you know we'll have to tell lucasfilm that that you can't do it right. so it was it was during that time it was two full-time jobs for me it was it was going into maybe factor five at about 9 nine thirty till about 2 30 and then driving up about 20 minutes to skywalker ranch for like 2 30 until 11 midnight one 
uh, and then I would flip it the next day. I would do Lucasfilm in the morning and then Factor Five in the evening. Was that seven and all the days Factor a week? Five guys. Yeah, seven days a week. I think I had oh one. Oh my god! And how how long how, how long was that for? How well, long it was did a you good. It was a good nine months, nine ten months. It was, yeah. But it was. It. I mean, it was kind. Of, I saw it as like my graduate school, you know, and and I saw it as my ticket, my ticket, kind of. I mean, it was the first time I was asked to be a a lead artist, which is sort of, the game industry. That's equivalent to a production designer so right. it was a promotion for me but it was also um the longest that i had ever worked on a on a motion picture and and you know episode two was a big big movie and so i was kind of seeing the stars aligning and being like okay this could actually give me you know uh my golden ticket to work more in film, which was that, which was what I was wanting, or it could kind of help cement um, my place in games. And I think the thing that I, I loved about Rogue Leader was that it was like, what I said was like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do all the ships, I'm gonna do all the landscape stuff, I'll take on any, I'll take on the worst job, I'll take on the hardest job, I'll, you want special effects, I can, yeah, I'll give you laser textures and all this stuff. And I didn't mind that because it was just such a small team. I mean, there was just, you know, there was me and Jim Moore. There was amazing modeler Bastian Hoppe and uh, Mario Bastian did all the cockpits, all the ships, all the rebel ships. Mario Wagner did the TIE fighters. Um, and it was just, it was a very small group. And we just, for, for me, it was kind of, you know, for how difficult Rogue Squadron was, Rogue Leader was, it was, even though the workload was so much bigger and it was more complex, I could just go into work, put headphones on, listen to documentaries about World War One or whatever, <laughs> and just geek out on painting spaceships all day. But how do you maintain... How do you maintain that for that duration of time, though? Because you're you're, you're going back and well, <laughs> well yeah. Well, I it was imagine a so. Company. <laughs> I know, but if you're if you're going back and forth between two companies seven days a week for nine months, I'm just wondering how you maintain the energy and well, and yeah. and still sort of stay focused. Because wouldn't eventually you'd you'd get tired and drained, and I would think it would be hard to maintain such a high level of work for that period of yeah. time. I mean, obviously you have a yeah, superpower it's, it's there. Not a, it's not a smart. <laughs> I don't even think it's a legal way to work either. But um, well, it worked in your favor because you're in a good position now. But yeah, but so. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I mean, I, I think now a lot of us talk about work-life um, balance, yeah. But it was it was strange because I was getting to go to Skywalker Ranch every day, every day I was able to, you know, they give you a, a special key. You go into the main lobby of Skywalker Ranch and you put the key in the door, which because the floors only go up to the second floor. And wow. have this magic key that takes you up to the third floor. And so, I mean, there was something magical about sort of achieving your dream of um, of being able to be there. Uh, I mean, like I was saying, just me being able to get my head down at Factor Five and be painting X-Wings and Y-Wings. And there was something meditatively wonderful about that. So it's like my my memories of that time are not bad <laughs> it's actually well you know, yeah if you enjoy what you do then I, I guess it's it's great yeah i mean i think if if i'd been you know i mean it, it was kind of it would wear you down but we were all um you know it's like that bit in full metal jacket where the 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 editor for stripes and stripes is saying you know it's a shit sandwich and we're all gonna have to take a bite it's like all of us knew that we were in this um, 
it was especially, I mean, Rogue Leader had to come out on that date. It had to be a release title. And usually, and with movies, 99% of the time, they, well, maybe not 99, 87% of the time, they, they come out when they're supposed to. So it's like all the teams, both the animatics team at Lucasfilm and Rogue Leader, we were all in the same um, trench. No, I don't think I should use war analogies, but it it, it made a lot, it of, a lot of game developers easier. do use war analogies <laughs> when they, yeah, particularly when it, they talk it, about crunch. So it's fine. Yeah, but no, nobody died. Nobody no, died. nobody died. No, that is true. But it, but it's a different way of looking at things. I mean, um, the guy that I studied under Ian McKeg, uh, when I I was first kind of like working for him and being his his assistant and his apprentice. And I'd pick him up in the morning because back then he didn't drive. And he'd be like, yes, Paul, I was, I was up working till four in the morning and I feel excited. It's great. And, it, you know, being around people like that was inspiring. You, you mm. would, th there were all these stories of the art department at Skywalker Ranch just doing crazy hours and animatics too and, and just there was this camaraderie of, of trying to get all this stuff done and, and it was sort of infectious. And I remember there was a kid um, that was working on episode two, uh, a guy named Dorian Bustamante, who's you know 20 years later. Now he's like layout supervisor. Uh, he was worked on so many of the um, Marvel movies and now he's at Disney. <laughs> he was telling me that even now he's given a deadline like like oh you got to have the shot done by thursday and it's monday and he wouldn't be thinking monday tuesday wednesday thursday he would be thinking all right there's 24 hours in a day times monday tuesday when so he'd just be thinking in a totally different way than all right um, yeah and i and so when you kind of have that fire in your belly you know, I, I think that's what, um, what's great about being able to work in such a fun industry, even though it can be high stress, is that there's there's kind of an excitement. You you get a buzz of of doing this stuff that you know millions of people might see, and there's also this stress of not wanting to mess up. Of um, so, is there like imposter syndrome? almost with Impostors. it definitely um definitely but to a point i mean i think there there are things that i know that i'm not so great at and and i'm afraid of being sniffed out um there are other you things you can tell me off here that... you can tell me off here what that is <laughs> <laughs> no but but well my second day storyboarding I kind of, I don't want to, it wasn't really a panic attack, but, but I kind of, I went up to Ian and just said, I'm, I'm in way over my head. I, I don't think I can, I can't do this, Ian. And here it was, this was, you know, the first movie that I work, was working on. It was episode one. It was where, what I wanted to do since I was 10. And I was kind of freaking out and Ian calmed me down and he was just like, don't worry, Paul. Let me let me just do let me just do your blue boards, which would be like really rough sketches, and then you you just draw these and do, make them beautiful, and that calmed me down. And it was like next day I got better, and next day I got better. But it was that was definitely imposter syndrome of you know walking in, um, you know, Doug Chang is just like this amazing well i mean they were all amazing doug jay ian terrell um i think my super you know if we, if we all have superpowers my, my superpower is not really something enviable it's just that i can <laughs> i know that i can i can quickly in photoshop make something look real yeah ish so that's not the sexiest superpower I'm, there's not going to be a comic book made out of me. I'm not. You're, you're not going to see me in a Marvel too movie humble, with, Paul. with with my stylus and my tablet. <laughs> Say hi. 
I'll, I'll, I'll make that look real for you. Yeah. Uh, Paul's come to save us. Um, but it's like with, with that stuff, I knew because I had done it so many thousands of times, um, you know, under pressure, I knew I could do that. Mm. Uh, and so even I was telling you that, you know, I did a lot of work on, on Lightyear, uh, Pixar's Lightyear, and that aesthetic was a similar aesthetic. And they were like, God, you're fast. You're fast, Paul. And I was like, well, I was doing well you learned years. you learned it way yeah. back then, right? Hmm. Yeah. How did um you find, because obviously 9-11 kind of intertwined with the end of production on Rogue Leader, right? Yeah. And there was, there was perhaps worry that the game was going to get canceled or you'd have to take stuff out? Well, I mean, in my mind, in my head, I mean, I think I kind of knew the game would come out. But in my mind, when that happened, because I remember uh, we had, we finished the game, but we were all supposed to come in every day in case something broke because quality assurance people would be testing the game. And if something happened, or I mean, if something was broken, we would we would all have to be there. But I, I kind of came in late in the morning and, um, and I just remember uh, Mario Wagner came up to me and can I can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, okay? of course. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Mario was like, "There was a big fuck up," and I was like, "Did the server go down?" <laughs> what, what? And he's like, "No, no, these planes." Why? Why am I making Mario sound Hispanic? He was he was like, you know, telling me two planes hit the World Trade Center, and I was like, "No." no mario you you didn't know that that didn't happen and um yeah and just to look at the news and it just it really was um it made you think about you know what's important in life and just all these thousands of people died innocent people and you just you're just like you know, we're making a game. Is this, you know, are, is anybody going to play games anymore? <laughs> you know, you just, yeah. I suppose energy so, is depleted at that point and nothing else matters. Yeah. It was just so, it was just such a strange thing. And I remember even my dad, you know, is not a very, you know, jingoistic guy, but I remember he bought me a flag to put on my, in front of my house, you know, just because he was, it, it was it was a little strange uh, i was telling you just factor five had a lot of people from we had people you know obviously from germany and uh, new zealand and uh, uh, france and scotland and canada and, and i think they were a little bit weirded out all the american flags on people's houses um but it was just it was just a strange time and i remember humvees at the golden gate bridge um and it uh th there's there's a great podcast about the making of band of brothers if anybody is into that show but i forgot band of brothers came out around the same time as you know i think it was like they had shown one episode and then and then september 11th happened and they were kind of having a similar thing of just who cares about a series when something like this happens and um it even made me think of there's a Woody Allen film called Radio Days where Mia Farrow's character gets this big break, her first big break on the radio. And she's just about to say her first word when this guy breaks in and says, there's been an attack on Pearl Harbor. And she's she's like, what's going on? Who is this Pearl Harbor? And and it was just a very confusing time. Um, I think I, t I, I was telling you about one of the... Um, one of the guys in QA, one of the game testers, thought that it was it was in bad taste that um, in one of the missions you're killing Tie Fighter pilots um, before they reach their Tie Fighters, mm. and and <laughs> it's like I could kind of see it, but you know, Tie Fighter pilots they're 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 bad, they're bad people, they're gonna they're do bad, bad people, things. so they gotta go, yeah, they gotta go, and they're clones anyway, they're yeah. they're, they're all. They're not real. They're all Django fed. I mean, it's 
abominations <laughs> to God. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But, but, it, did, but did, did, um, did people who worked in America from other countries, whether it was France or New Zealand or Switzerland or wherever, did they understand the gravity of 9-11 at that point in time? Or, or were they, they just kind of like, it's... I don't quite understand how... Yeah. I mean, I think they did, but also, I mean, you think about European history, even British history. Um, I mean, I remember talking to Julian one time and he was, um, God, now I can't remember the name. There was kind of like a, a German almost version of the IRA or it was the, it's mentioned in the film Munich, but there were some terrorist things going on in Germany. Um, God, I, I don't know the group, but I mean, it's, I think it was definitely strange for them. And, and Kershaw uh, Karatesh, um, lovely guy. And we were kind of protective of him because, you know, even though he's, he's not Arabic, he's, you know, he's Turkish, um, but he looked a little, he didn't look like Joe American six pack and, I mean, he was fine, but you were hearing about people that were Sikh that were getting beaten up because, you know, just yeah. stupid. So I think, and I think even for um, for some of the, the guys from Germany, just seeing the American flags was kind of a, um, just obviously <laughs> having flags in front of houses didn't really work out so well in in germany a long time yeah ago, so. but americans are patriotic though so you do see the american flag quite a bit oh yeah i did i did see no. there was the, i'm not sure if you saw this but on tiktok recently there was some australian girl that was in america and she saw a whole bunch of flags somewhere in texas and she said i'm tired of seeing american flags and i think she got canceled or <laughs> she 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 got a whole lot of hate um but, you know, yeah. what was deemed mocking the American flag, but it's just, yeah, yeah, but it's, Although, it's, it's part of the culture. So. Switzerland, I was amazed. Those Swiss have got a lot of flags. Up. Do they? They do. They Interesting. Do. Yeah. No, but I, I, it's, yeah, it was, it was kind of, a, it was a crazy time. I mean, I grew up in a small town up north and I remember, Right after 9-11, there was a, a young man uh, from Petaluma who was in the Air Force, and they were doing patrols, and he kind of buzzed his hometown and um, got everybody scared. So, I mean, you were hearing about people in Kansas wanting to have, um, wanting to protect their their federal buildings against possible, you know, terrorism. So it was mm. just... It was a yeah, it was a crazy time. But the game came out was a success. <laughs> the game came regardless. Out, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we, we were yeah, we, we went off on a tangent. That, yeah, that's right. Game... I, I love tangents, so it's fine. Um yeah. <laughs> I did want to cover Grim Fandango briefly, because that is the game that led you to your job at Pixar, right? Well in a way. That game saved me twice. So um when I first started working at LucasArts, it was a storyboard artist and and things would go well and they'd be like, hey, Paul, we love you. Uh, we'll call you again uh, as soon as there's more storyboarding work. Thank you. You know, so I would be let go. I would just be a contract worker. And, and I remember talking to my boss, just saying, hey, I'd really like to work here uh, more. Um, what, what, what can I do? What, what can I, and, and my boss said, well, LucasArts is not a charity, Paul. And you, we kind of get this sense that you're afraid of computers and, um, and well, one, I wasn't literally afraid of computers. Um, and my, my dad bought an Apple II in 1978. There was some rudimentary painting programs. And I, I also knew that LucasArts wasn't a charity, but I, I could see what they meant. Cause I, I think, you know, 
it's weird. I think in 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 business, you have a perception of yourself, and then there's the perception that other people have of you. And so I think they'd only just see me drawing paper and drawing people and spaceships and stuff. So they they never saw that. And it just happened to be the luckiest of coincidences that Grim Fandango um, uh, was looking for a texture artist. And for, for our listener, Grim Fandango was um, uh, just a wonderful adventure game um, with all these pre-rendered images. It was a, a film noir game with De Los De Los Muertos characters and all Hispanic actors and just wonderful music. And it was just, um, I love film noir um, and I love anything that it has to do with that time period. I love, you know, art deco design. And so it was just the perfect um, entry drug, entry level drug to, <laughs> to Photoshop and to um, just working on these really cool designs. Peter Chan had done some beautiful artwork. And so that kind of cemented where I, um, people began to see like, oh, hey, he can he can actually do this. And oh, that's actually good. And it kind of did a few things for me because I realized I could actually paint stuff that wasn't there in the geometry and make it look like it was there in geometry, which is the tricks of map painting. And it made me learn about bump maps and displacement maps. But uh, when a friend of mine, a guy named Adam Schnitzer, had quit, he was uh, he was doing 3D models. I was doing paintings for him. When he quit, I took his job as so. I started doing modeling and lighting, and so Grim Fandango really kind of gave me the digital chops. And it was and it was another one of those games where. I was doing crazy hours just because I was learning a lot. I mean, learning 3D is for, especially for somebody like me, is, is, is that was very difficult. But it was this idea that painting could save me, painting that I could paint stuff and paint displacement and all these things that would help fake geometry was a big thing that saved me. And then, um, cut to years later when I was applying at Pixar it was I had to go through I had to go to Pixar like three different times be interviewed by 18 people the um the technical lead uh um man named Rick Sayer who can who can be a little bit intimidating looking and and, and very serious um he was he's kind of looking at my portfolio and kind of frowning and he was like i don't see anything that's stylized in here and then i thought well i guess it was the imposter syndrome i was like oh you caught me um i'm i i guess i'm out i i, I thought i was pretty close but I'll, I'll i'll i guess i'm gonna go and then this part of me was like Grim Pandango. I worked on Grim Pandango and I've got stylized stuff. And, and here, 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 take a look. And his face changed. And um, this art director, Scott Capel, was like, what? Is, is that like The Sims? What, what was Grim Fandango? Is that like The Sims? And Rick Sayer was like, no, it was just the best game ever made. And so Grim Fandango saved me. So thank you, and Tim. The rest is history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you know that um and i think to me lucas arts it my time there and at lucasfilm just really um it was kind of the the finishing school that i i always needed um mm. and that was like i was saying before even though that was so much work that that was kind of what helped get me into pixar which was kind of what i had always been wanting to do was you know, I remember having this big debate with some of my friends at, at at Lucasfilm, and I was like, "Well, would you would you rather work on um, would you rather have lots of responsibility on a bad movie, or would you be okay with you know, it was almost like a lesser role, but on a film that would be a classic that people would remember and that you could feel proud of?" 
And, and it was interesting because some of my friends were like, nope, I'd rather work on a shitty film and have, have a lot of, a lot of um, responsibility and be able to say, yeah, on this shitty film, that's my shot. That's, I did all that stuff for this shitty film. And, and for me, I was beginning to, I think I, I was beginning to get a little worn down in the industry just from the sense of, I was like, uh, in video games, I was making beautiful stuff for people to blow up, or I was, you know, maybe working on doing film work for films that I didn't feel totally um, confident about. But it was like when I first started working at Pixar, you know, I'm, I remember seeing the reels for The Incredibles and just getting blown away and just thought, wow, this is, this is a really good film. I don't. And I now don't you're making this. Yeah. No. So it was. Um, yeah. So that's that's my long-winded. That's my long-winded story. I think that's a that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, <laughs> before you go though, because I I think that's a brilliant arc, right, from there to now. But before you go, I'll I will quickly ask about because you interacted with George Lucas very briefly, right? What are the unspoken rules with George Lucas? <laughs> well, it's, it's, and I don't, I don't even know if George knew this, but we were just, I mean, it's kind of an unspoken thing. And even, even like at Pixar, it's the, the thing is, you know, be cool. Don't geek out. Don't. But I think with George, it was like, you know, he's, he was the head of all these different divisions. He's trying to concentrate on his movie, you know, don't come up to him and, mm. you know, start asking him questions. Don't, I mean, they were also saying, don't say no to him, which wasn't like any of us would be like, well, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, but it was a little strange because I remember um, on my first day, Ian, well, Ian had already told me kind of like the unwritten rules. And then I remember on my first day, Doug Chang was saying, did somebody tell you how to be around? <laughs> you know, because I, I think George is kind of shy and, you know, he's not really comfortable people coming up wanting to shake his hand or, um, you know, there was some guy that, that did that some guy that was um that had just started at ilm and went up to jordan and was like you know you're the reason i'm in this industry i just want to thank you i'm going to work so hard for you da, 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 da. and they kind of sent out an email just saying just just chill out keep your just distance don't... be chill here yeah and well i don't i don't think people like it when you geek out over them i think they find it very uncomfortable yeah i think it, you know it's it not normal depends. It's not well, really... but but I mean, it's like people get passionate about stuff. Oh, I mean, of course they do, and it's very you know, easy. If, if I were to, to, oh yeah, I mean, if if I were to see Steven Spielberg, I'm I, I would, I would politely geek out and ask him questions about Empire of the Sun, and you know, just yeah, yeah. You you, you can't help because I mean, so many of these things are part of your childhood and. You know, I think it's, but it, but it's, again, it's sort of strange when you see how the sausage is made, that it's a different, you know, that it's, it is a little bit different. And, and I think, you know, we would see famous people like at Skywalker Ranch, and it was just strange that I would see them, but my first, I mean, I'm a shy guy, so I, I wouldn't come up to them. Really? Anyway, you don't seem it, shy to me. No, but... I, I I can't remember if I told you, but it was like I, I was. Uh, they have like this rec center thing at Skywalker Ranch, and and me and the animatics guys were getting lunch, and I see Paul Thomas Anderson, the film director, and I'm like, oh, look, there's Paul Thomas Anderson, and I kind of I I just I, I kind of got eye contact with him just for a second, and he looked at me and he was like, he's <laughs> like, yep, you, you spotted me. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to come talk to me? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm just like, 
um, 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 just <laughs> going uh, back to my lunch. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, I'll wrap up there. I could speak to you for hours, but uh, <laughs> time is of the essence. But uh, if anyone wants to keep up to date with you and what you're doing, is there any way they can do that? Um. <laughs> no, you don't strike me you don't strike me as a social media guy <laughs> no. i could be wrong i i don't i don't tweet or what, what do you do now on elon musk's x do you x do you i don't but, know yeah. actually no. i mean i still call it tweeting i still call it yeah. twitter maybe he'll call it twitter x i don't know yeah no i i'm i'm afraid i'm 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 pretty horrible and i got two really little kids so it's like um I think my conversational skills are not what they used to be anyway. So it's like oh, I just... think you underestimate yourself. You're doing pretty well. You're great. Yeah. You're natural at this. But um, yeah. Okay. Well, that that's fine. That's fine. If people want to contact with contact you, they'll have to go through me. That's fine. Right. <laughs> I can be like your bodyguard or security. Guard. My gatekeeper. Yeah. yeah, gatekeeper. That's that's a good way of putting it. Um, all right. Well, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. Bye.